As you can probably tell, visiting galleries and museums is one of my absolute favourite activities. And our new sponsor, the National Art Pass, makes that a whole lot easier, smoother and cheaper for us art lovers and gallery goers. Not only does the National Art Pass grant you free entry to over 240 museums, galleries and historic houses across the UK, such as Kensington Palace, Cardiff Castle and the Horniman Museum, it also gives 50% off major exhibitions at places such as the British Museum, Tate, v National Gallery, National Portrait Gallery and so many more. And we all know that they have some pretty good upcoming and current exhibitions, from Dora Maar at the Tate Modern to Elizabeth Payton at the National Portrait Gallery. Membership is just £70 for an entire year, and for those under 30, it's a mere £45. And for lucky Great Women Artists listeners, you can also receive an exclusive tote bag designed by Malika Fev when you buy a National Art Pass by entering the code GREAT at checkout. Thanks to our sponsor, the National Art Pass, for making this podcast possible. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. My guest today is the groundbreaking curator and director of Tate Modern, Frances Morris. A graduate of Cambridge of the Courtauld, Frances joined Tate in 1987 before becoming head of displays at Tate Modern when it first opened in 2000 and director of collections International Art from 2006. In January 2016, she was appointed director of this museum that attracts 6.4 million visitors a year and, as you probably guessed, is my favourite place in the world. Alongside many exhibition projects and publications, Frances has led the transformation of Tate's international collection, strategically broadening and diversifying its international reach and pioneering new forms of museum display. Frances was also instrumental in ensuring a diverse range of artists beyond view for the opening of Tate Modern's Blavatnik building. And I should add that it was shortly after the opening of this extension that I first met Frances by going up to her at customs at JFK Airport and telling her what a fan I was of her curatorial work. Frances has curated some of the most extraordinary and critically acclaimed exhibitions that I have been lucky enough to witness, including the likes of Yayo Kusama, Louise Bourgeois, and of course, Agnes Martin, the great American abstract painter known for her square canvases and meticulously rendered grids that we are excitingly going to be discussing today. Welcome, Frances. How are you doing today? I'm really good. Great to be here with you. Fantastic. So I was lucky enough to see your exhibition here at Tate Modern in 2015, but also see a version at the Guggenheim in 2016. And every single time I see an Agnes Martin painting, I feel transported to a kind of another place, another time, even another world. I mean, to me, they're completely sublime paintings. How do you feel when you're in front of an Agnes Martin painting? Sort of mesmerised. It's difficult to describe the feeling because, of course, in one sense, there's nothing there. 
So it's very difficult to give a verbal description, but I find them totally arresting. We have a great painting in our collection, Morning, 1965. And in a way, and we'll come back to that later, I'm sure, Morning was the reason that I wanted to make the Agnes Martin show. And I've always been very intrigued to see the way our audiences react to Morning. And they either walk straight past without even noticing it, or they stop. And they stop and they stop and they stay stopped. And what is going on in their heads? Kind of, what is the experience? What is the draw of something that's so restrained, so almost not there, and your brain? And I liken that experience to the way you can sit on a headland or on a beach and you can stare at the sea for hours and hours and hours. And your brain is sort of empty, but it is a mesmerizing, almost sublime experience. Can you describe morning for us? Well, it's like many of her mature works. It's a work from 65. It's a square format. And it, at a distance, presents just a white to grey surface. As you get closer, you see that it's a surface that is inscribed with a grid. And as you get closer, you see that the grid is made up not of single lines intersecting, but of double lines. So there's a graphite and there's a red wax. And they intersect not as a square, the canvas is a square, but as rectangles. And as you get closer still, you see that the lines are barely lines, but they are actually the inflections of graphite or wax as they unfold on this slightly bumpy surface. So that the painting, there's a moment where you read it as a grid, and then as you get closer, you read it as the mark making, the kind of materiality. It's very, very extraordinary and very compelling. And the reason it's compelling is because it, you're never quite sure what it is. You look and you look and you look. And it's the most meditative thing to think about nothing but the thing in front of you. And you're not thinking about its reference to anything else. You're not thinking about what it makes you think about. You're thinking about it and its making. And it kind of empties your brain, but not in a kind of Dumbo way. It empties your brain or fills your brain with something that's so specific and so intangible. And I'm, I'm using a lot of words to describe something that you can't really describe with words. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It's totally a kind of state of mind in a way. And I love the way that you're commenting on the fact that how do you see it from far away and up close? It's those totally different sensations. When was the first time you actually saw an Agnes Martin work in the flesh, do you think? I think it was, it was our Agnes Martin been in the collection kind of as long as I can remember yeah. and always as a single painting and always hung by my predecessors at Tate as part of minimalism and of course I always knew that minimalism was really blokes and it was sculpture so there was sort of slightly adding Mac what is this painting doing in this context and of course it subscribes to so much of the kind of minimalist aesthetic in terms of its rectangular precision its flatness it's minimal means, it's just monochrome surface and line, and yet has nothing of the rigidity or the kind of industrial fabrication or repetitive sameness of a sculpture by Solowit or a cube by Donald Judd. So there was always that sort of, why is this in this context? Absolutely the same moment in time, so similar and yet so distant. And that always troubled me and it interested me. Yeah. And what do you think could have led Agnes Martin to create these kind of such sublime, interesting kind of state of mind works? Well, when you look back at Agnes Martin's own journey, her journey through the kind of history of art from 
I suppose the beginnings, like most artists, in kind of figurative, rather sort of post-impressionist works, is the journey that her generation of abstract expressionist painters undertook. So the beginnings of exploration of form and line through the kind of double lens of cubism and surrealism. And of course, they were very much the dominant aesthetics that you would have seen had you been an American artist of Agnes's age visiting the Museum of Modern Art in New York and those great shows that Alfred Barr made in the 30s, Cubism and Abstract Art Surrealism. And I think that the encounter with those two modalities shaped very different outcomes. So Pollock, you see Pollock working through that, but also Gorky or um, de Kooning. And when you look at Martin's early work, she's undertaking that journey. You see both Miro in her work, you see Tongi, you see the Europeans, but you also see those Europeans already mediated through American practice. So Gottlieb and Gorky, for example, are very present, as indeed is Pollock. So she came of age in the wake of abstract expressionism, although because of her slightly stunted career, because of her age, when she decided to be an artist, she's a little bit after them. So actually when she matures as an artist, it's in a slightly subsequent era, which is the era of minimalism, with a generation of artists who reacted against abstract expressionism. So there's, there's this sort of disjunction in Martin's work. She speaks like an abstract expressionist. She talks about inspiration and revelation. And there's a sense that her work is sort of automatist almost. And yet the physical manifestation of it feels more akin to a kind of minimalist practice. And that's the great enigma of Agnes Martin and why she's, to my mind, so interesting. Absolutely. So she was born in Canada in 1912 um, to Scottish Presbyterian parents and spent most of her childhood on a farm surrounded by nature. I'm intrigued to kind of know about her upbringing. And you mentioned here, you know, she was a late bloomer to the art world. She started her career when she was 30. What do you think sort of led her to actually start so late in a way? I think we don't know so much about Agnes Martin's early years. She was born, as you say, in Canada, in Macklin, in Saskatchewan. I don't know whether you've ever been there, but it's like endless prairies. And when you see her painting, you know, it's almost inescapable to make an analogy between this huge, open, flat landscape intersected with highways and telegraph poles, you know, (laughs) vertical lines, and her late paintings. But from that very, very early isolated existence, the family, her father died, they moved to Vancouver. And as you say, she had a very rural upbringing, a very tough upbringing. She never got on with her mother. I think she was fiercely independent from early childhood. There are stories of her walking to school on her own age four. (laughs) Um, I think it was a strongly religious family. It's interesting, Martin's later writing, which is almost stream of consciousness writing, has lots of biblical references, both to the Bible, but also to kind of familiar hymns that would have been sung at church on Sunday. But to all intents and purposes, she was a girl from the land. She was a vigorous swimmer. She learned to sail. She, well, she was going to be in the Olympic team, wasn't Absolutely. she? Absolutely. Yeah. She loved the outback. And that aspect of her life, she kept with her all the time. And one needs to balance that. Her love of the of isolation, of hiking, of camping, of really existing in the wild. One has to kind of balance that with this sort of um, feeling of a sort of very urban aesthetic in her late work. 
She escaped Canada in her late teens. Her sister was in Washington. She came to be with her sister, I think as an au pair. She finished high school. She finished high school very late in her early 20s. Yeah. And then she went through years, really, of further education, initially training as a teacher, and at some point during that process becoming interested in art and switching then to study fine arts and art education. So at some point in her late 20s, early 30s, she must have envisaged either the idea of being an artist or an art teacher. And when she moved, I think, in her 30s to study in Colombia in the early 40s, she would at that moment had access to the great resources in New York of modern and contemporary art. And it was that period from the early 40s to the 50s that she began this quite slow but very determined journey to find her own voice through her own visual practice. It's interesting that, you know, she was at Columbia in this quite intellectual environment as well, because am I right in thinking actually she attended a lot of lectures on Zen Buddhism? Yes, yeah, so, so yes, an intellectual environment, but very philosophical, yeah. spiritual environment. I think it was at that, not quite sure when, that she got to you know, add Reinhardt. And all the evidence in her writings later on is that the language of Zen Buddhism suited her understanding of the aesthetic experience very well. So in 1947, she then sort of settles in Taos in New Mexico, which is the kind of art-filled town that's very famously known to house people like George O'Keefe, which obviously she was very inspired by. What was Agnes Martin's kind of early work like? Her very earliest work, she made portraits and she made oh, landscapes. Wow. And there are very few of them, yeah. still, I mean, the really early paintings. And I have to say, they don't seem to me to show a precocious talent. But as she begins to explore, I suppose, the language of Cubism, She's interested in structure from very early on, but she's also interested in the fluidity of surrealism and the relationship between form and line in surrealism. So the early paintings are, I would say they're biomorphic, suggestive of figures and landscapes. And through the early decade, it's the landscape metaphor that comes to the fore. Always interested in earth colors and interested in very often the contrast between sharp, vivid, linear making and soft, edgeless forms. And do you think it was that kind of looking at the landscape that actually then led her to abstraction? How did I she make don't, I don't. I don't think it was looking at the landscape. I think it was the emotion of the landscape, the, the experience of the landscape. But when you look at her works in relationship to the paintings of Gottlieb and Gorky, for example, I think she's looking at other artists' work. That is the letter. It's, it's looking at other artists' practice. It's working out how they do it, taking from those other artists and creating her own highly original way of picturing the world. But there are, there are very clear references. By the 50s, Rothko is a, seems to me a very major influence. Absolutely, because then actually in 1957, she returns to New York at the request of Betty Parsons, who's this kind of groundbreaking um, gallerist who shows Pollock, who shows the abstract expressionists. So was she kind of staying in touch with what was happening in the New York art scene very much when she was living in Taos? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, Taos was quite a, you know, it's a really kind of hokey little village now, but <laughs> it was quite a centre of yeah. um, historically in the 20th century of American culture. So there were people coming in and out of Taos all the time and New Mexico. She would have been very highly aware of what was going on. Betty Parsons was a visitor mm. and would bring her entourage. And my 
Martin already, I think in 55, had a, a year residency at the Wurlitzer Foundation and showed her work at Harvard. Most writings on Agnes Martin emphasize her isolation, portray her as a kind of um, very solitary, lonely figure, almost kind of hermetic. I've spent time in Taos and I met a lot of the people that oh, wow. Agnes knew yeah. in her later years. And, you know, when she was in good form, she was very sociable. She had friends. <laughs> she parties. She knew people. And uh, I think she's, uh, you know, she was part of that mythologizing of her own work too. Yeah. She, she hated talking about her work. Mm. You have to remember that she belonged to a generation of artists who really did not accept the idea of influence. And they would never have, I mean, Newman, Rothko, Pollock, they would have never said, I owe it all to my predecessors <laughs> or I've been looking at. But I think when you look at all their works, you see in their work an analysis of artists that they're really interested in. No art comes from nothing. Her work was not born ready-made in her head, although in some ways, it, well, we'll come to that in a minute, but <laughs> yeah. there are clear influences. And I think the kind of closest you get to them is in the way that Martin acknowledged the importance of those other artists. Uh, Reinhardt, you know, she was absolutely bereft when he died. Mm. Rothko, Barnett Newman, Kelly, they were important to her. And do you think she was also important then? Because obviously they all lived together in Lower Manhattan as well. Well, I'm not sure how important she was to the Rothko, Barnett Newman generation, mm. who were already seriously into mature careers. But Betty Parsons offered her a show if she came to New York. I mean, clearly Betty, sensible woman, thought, I can't work with this artist, yeah. <laughs> you know, half a world away. So... And she bought all her paintings, didn't she? Yeah. She found Martin lodgings right in the tip of Manhattan with a kind of derelict dockland area, which was known as County's Slip, mm. which was already a kind of thriving community of poor artists. Yeah. So there was a community of artists down there and they were they were good artists. There was Ellsworth Kelly, yeah. you know, back from <laughs> Europe. Um, there was Robert them. Indiana. And all of those artists were at really important moments in their career. They were transitioning from being young, you know, experimental figures to finding their mature voices. And so it was absolutely the right moment for Martin to join that community because she too, although she was 10 years older than them, was at that moment in her career. Yeah, It gave her a hugely important period of being in a very, very supportive community of people who respected her who liked her very much, and the conversation was about art and culture. And from her earliest work in the uh, late 40s to the mid-60s as being like the first wave of her career, of a period of continuous innovation, that the pace of innovation in New York is incredible. Yeah. And in just five years, she moves from a really good but quite derivative artist to being highly original, a singular voice, utterly unique and acclaimed yeah. by the New York art world. So she never had any issue kind of being a woman artist in this kind of very male-dominated environment? I think Martin was her <laughs> own, I'm going to say she was her own man. Uh, she was, I think she, she did two things. She protected her homosexuality. Yeah. That was a very important mechanism for her. And accounts, I think, for much of the perhaps misunderstanding of her as a solitary figure. Mm. She wasn't solitary. She needed her studio time and she needed her time alone for all sorts of reasons. 
beyond her character. She was absolutely troubled by schizophrenia very seriously. I didn't know when it started, yeah. but clearly through that period in New York, there were one or two major psychotic episodes when she uh, was in hospital. But how great that she was supported by this very yeah. loving community. Uh, Robert Indiana was very instrumental in finding good psychiatric help for her. Lenore Tawney, the uh, very experimental, important uh, fiber artist, was a very, very close friend. I don't know whether they were lovers, but Lenore was incredibly important in supporting Martin emotionally through that time. Do you think you see much of her mental health kind of through her paintings? I think you see it massively in her writings. Yeah. I think there was a way of reading her painting, particularly the later painting, in its formal repetition and resistance of innovation as the way that she stabilised her life finally in her later years. So in the 1960s, she's obviously living in New York. How does her work kind of develop at this time? Well, what's interesting, we always think of Martin quintessentially as a painter, but she arrives in New York and within days she's a sculptor mm. or she's a maker of things and she becomes, it's at that moment where actually assemblage yeah. and bricolage is becoming a kind of the new thing in American art, that Martin begins possibly working with people like Robert Indiana. He's yeah. on the same track. They're picking up stuff and they're bringing it into their work. So suddenly there is the appearance in Martin's work of bolts and nails. And when you look at these works that Martin made using found objects, it's really interesting because she begins to arrange the objects for the first time in a grid. The grid comes through in arranging physical things rather than as a process of drawing. Of course, subsequently it turns into the way she draws. To begin with, the experimentation is often in small scale and in relief form. And I think it's interesting that, that she's plunged into this US scene. Anecdotally, we know she's going to see a lot of shows. Yeah. She's very passionate about galleries and museums and artists. Uh, never spoke about it, but it's evident in some of her behaviours that she was. And she became close to a number of artists who were experimenting in similar ways. I think she's very aware of what Lenore Tawney is doing in weaving. And Lenore Tawney's weavings are sculptural. She hangs them in three-dimensional space. And then Martin was also very close and I think had a sexual relationship with the Greek artist Chrysa. Mm. And Chrysa at that time was evolving her own understanding of the grid and was also working with found objects. And there's a very close affinity between their work at this time. So she's experimenting with things outside the studio for the first time in new ways. And through that process arrives at almost like a formula that then she begins to work through in her painting. So there's a fantastic, really interesting dialogue between painting and making at that time. Yeah, no, it's so interesting you should say about weaving as well, because, I mean, there are so many grids kind of happening everywhere in yeah. so many different formats and objects and everything. But how did she kind of come up with those grids in her mind? How did she know that that was the painting that she wanted to make? Well, if when Agnes Martin was asked about um, the emergence of the grid in her work, she said in a rather dreamy session, I was looking at a tree one day and the grid came into my head. Um, <laughs> Which I think is her way of saying, please don't ask me, <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you. Yeah. But I think it, well, no, I think it evolved through experimentation yeah. until a point where she felt, bingo, that's it. And then through the late 50s, early 60s, a uh, series of very small paintings, sort of 12 by 12. She always worked in 
kind of uniform formats, you know, the six-footers. She did very little experimentation in terms of the size of her paintings. But through that period, there's a series of small-scale 12-inch square paintings which feel like if you could only put them in the right order, mm. they would be the journey to the grid. And it's about edges and boundaries and it's about figure and object, really technical things. Mm. She was a real artist artist. She was interested in very abstract notions of form and figure and ground, really kind of depersonalized things. But they're so full of feeling. It's odd. It's a sort of systematic experimentation with different ways of filling a blank canvas. Yeah. <laughs> and by the early 60s, by about 63, she's got it. Yeah. And then there's this fantastic series of paintings, three or four years of large scale paintings, initially in oil, but then turning to acrylic, but also in gold leaf. Yes, so Friendship, one of my favourite paintings. variations of grids and marks laid out in grid form. Mm. And they're all utterly beautiful and utterly different, but all within this very tight register. Yeah. Now, I remember seeing Friendship, particularly at the Guggenheim. It's like this kind of wave of icons or something just glaring at you. And it's infinite icons. Yeah. And who it's... knows where the cash came for, yeah. from the... I mean, really, <laughs> I know it's oh, God, I we know so little about Agnes Martin, but I always wondered how come she managed to work with gold leaf. I mean, other people were using gold. There's a moment where gold became really cool. Chris used gold, How Indiana, but it must have cost a lot. And I love that gold and that friendship. And I think Lenore Tawney, who came from a more wealthy background, was probably very supportive of Martin at that time financially. Mm. And I sometimes wonder, I like to think that the title Friendship relates to that relationship with Tawny. Absolutely. But then in 1967, she abandons New York. Yeah. For Tao, she goes back. I mean, and then she kind of spends 18 months on the road, settles in New Mexico in 1968 after being inspired by an adobe brick. And she almost lives in this like monk-like condition and has a break for five years of painting. I mean, kind of what happens in this stage and what kind of leads her to then return to painting after this hiatus and go into this isolated state. I mean, what we've learned before, you know, she likes to be surrounded by people. It's interesting that she would turn her life around like this. Well, it is a big black hole. And yeah. I think it's a black hole that one could fill a little bit with more research. Yeah. And there is evidence that she did keep in touch with certain people during that period. She did leave New York. She wrote to Tawny to say that she needed space, she needed time, she needed the unknown, and she did go off hiking. She went off in a van. She emptied her studio. She destroyed a lot of paintings. She gave others away. It was a hiatus, but it wasn't the first hiatus. And I think when there are breaks in her career prior to that, where she, for mental health reasons, she had breakdowns, yeah. she needed space to gather her thoughts. But this is a longer period. And again, you know, the mythologizing of her career, all artists do this. She had a vision of an adobe brick house in New Mexico. <laughs> yeah. But maybe it was a memory that actually she had had an untroubled time and close relationships as a younger woman in New Mexico. And she went back to somewhere that she felt safe in. I think that last period in New York was very intense. She began to be very successful. I mean, the best critics reviewed her work. Her work was shown in London at the Tate in 69. Yeah. She was in a couple of those sort of really amazing early minimalist 
survey shows. Lawrence Alleyway was a huge fan, so was Donald Judd. There's an amazing moment in the Mary Lance documentary of her, which is kind of like clips of Agnes Martin just speaking in her studio. And there's a moment when she's like, oh yeah, the moment just asked for a painting. And yeah. I said, all right, like <laughs> totally casual about it. So that was a big deal. Yeah. And there would have been a lot of attention. Yeah. And Ryman died. She was very upset about that. So a whole, whole many different things combined to make her take the decision to cut and run. And when she came back to New Mexico, it was in a more isolated way, but not completely. There were people who supported her. She got to know people. She was a neighbor, a friend. And she lived in relative isolation with her voices. And one of the striking features, I think, when you begin to read some of the memoirs of people who visited and the way she talked about her own work is that she was living with serious mental health problems during that time. She was not on her own. She was living with her own internal voices. And that plays out, I think, in the late 60s, early 70s, when she's come back to rest in the fact that writing comes to the fore. So she is doing a lot of writing and other people are helping her write to transcribe her writings. And then she edges slowly back to the art world. She yeah. is invited to make a print portfolio in Stuttgart. She accepts the invitation. Yeah. Um, I love that series. It's called On a Clear it's Day. It's completely which I think beautiful is a, and it, yeah. it's so minimal. And uh, it reads like almost like a menu of options for the division of flat spaces. And it's like a menu that then she draws on for the rest of her life. So she makes the print portfolio, she's limbering back up, and then she's offered a retrospective in Philadelphia. And it must have been that thinking about the work, making the selections, being involved in that, that drew her back into the art world per se, and perhaps gave her the self-confidence to pick up the brush again. But it's interesting as well, because when she's preparing for her show in 1974 at Pace as well, she starts to use colour. Yeah, yes, she does. What do you think that kind of sparked in her? It's interesting, you know, having this, so much of her work, as you've said, is about form, it's about ground, it's about the ideas and the feeling, yet colour seems like quite a kind of daring and bold move. <laughs> Within such a restricted, restricted language that colour does seem radical. I mean, colour is barely the right word for the sort of incredibly muted, diluted tones of the work. And they're all, I mean, it's it's interesting, isn't it? It's red, yellow, and blue. Who's afraid of red, yellow, and blue? It's Barnett Newman, yeah. <laughs> uh, diluted right down. Wow. And what we see now, what it remains as her kind of oeuvre, are the paintings that she allows us to see. So I have no idea of the extent of her disappeared oeuvre. She painted and destroyed and painted and destroyed. So I imagine that before that exhibition in 74, which was kind of her reinstating herself into the art world with the support of Pace Gallery, the work went through a complex process of evolution. Mm. And Martin, very much from that time, was editing her work. So she would make a group of paintings, destroy them. So we have no idea, really, and can't even begin to imagine how or why she got to this particular formula but it is in colour and the grid has largely been replaced by these bands of colour. And we know now a lot about how she painted those and it's fascinating, the methodology, but what we don't know is why she painted those. But then I think that's such an interesting question because I think almost her titles 
kind of answer certain things for us, or they give us a hint. I don't know how much we should take her writing as explanations of her work at all, but I think that having work such as titles Happy Holiday, Morning, I Love the Whole World, On a Clear Day, Friendship. Well, there is a story here, a note of caution. Okay. And it's only a note of caution because I don't know the answer in fact. But the business of titling Martin's work is kind of wrapped in obscurity. In the 1960s, the early works do have titles, and I think Martin titled them. And I think, I imagine that Betty Parsons said, we need some titles. <laughs> and most of those titles refer to the landscape. Then during the period when she was in New York, most of the works do not have titles, but some of them do. And it has been suggested that when Martin had her breakdown, she was in Bellevue, the public hospital in New York. Her friends, Robert Indiana and Lenore, had her move to a private psychiatric hospital where she could be looked after with very special close personal attention and in order to fund some of that care she had one or two exhibitions I think one of them was at Robert Elcon Gallery but there is I think some evidence that one of the exhibitions of drawings took place when she was still in hospital yeah. and it was that Tawny Lenore Tawny and they were very close friends who titled the drawings for Martin. And apparently Agnes wasn't happy about it. And if you look at the paintings of when she went back to painting after the 70s, very few of them have titles until the end of the 90s, the 2000s. And again, anecdotally, I have understood that during that period, she was visited on Sundays by a family, by friends yeah. who had small children. And one of the children said, this may be apocryphal. <laughs> Agnes, what are your paintings called? Yeah. And Agnes, so they say, said, oh, they don't have titles. Would you like to help me title them? So that suddenly, for this short period of time, they have these really gorgeous, very baby-like yeah. titles. They're really innocent. Happy day, yeah. and I love the world. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so I think one just needs to be very cautious yeah. about reading too much into those titles. I think it's interesting as well, in, again, in the Mary Lance documentary, she's talking about music. And what really strikes me a lot about Agnes talking about music and how she talks about how Beethoven or any other composer, actually, they don't need an explanation for making this music. They just make music and it's about states of being. You know, when you listen to a piece of classical music, in a way, it's a very similar experience to being in front of an Agnes Martin. You just kind of get immersed in it. Can you talk a bit about how her work relates to states of being in this musical-like way? I think that both music and Martin's paintings are very difficult to recollect when you're not in the moment of the experience of them. Martin loved music. She loved, she liked all sorts of music. Did she paint with music? Good question. I don't know. <laughs> but, I, Sorry, but I do I'm with, No, it is a great question. Um, God, I'm going to have to get back and do some more research. <laughs> I don't know, but I do know that, you know, she loved declamatory songs. She loved Irish music. Yeah. She loved American folk songs. And there are stories of her bowling around New Mexico in her car when she had visitors singing at the top of her voice. Possibly a kind of crazy drama driver as well. She was going through every single She was a light. crazy driver <laughs> without any glasses and singing. So she, participating in music was a way of letting her short hair down. And I think she listened to a lot of music. She loved Mozart. She loved Bach. She loved Beethoven. So she loved the kind of cacophony of the head being filled with music and maybe music obliterating all the other thinking in a tense looking experience can obliterate other thinking in a very, and I think that state of 
transported suspension in the medium, in the moment that the best painting and the best music can bring to you. I think that's what she loved. And I think more than that, what she envied was the way that people writing about music don't have to say what it's about. Yeah. But when you're listening to music, you're not trying to find metaphors in the real world. You're not trying to compare a piece of music to an experience you've had in life. And I think she really resented the way people uh, tried to impose landscape on her painting, for example. I mean, I do it. I think, I think landscape is inescapable, but she resisted those metaphors very strongly. I mean, what I heard Arnie Glibger in your talk, actually, with him a few years ago say was how you look at a pa Agnes Marden painting and then you think of landscape because it's almost as though landscape comes second because we know what these lines are. Yes, I think that's very right. But I think what's interesting is that Arnie knew Agnes yeah. Martin in her late years, and particularly from the 70s, and how well he knew her subsequently, I don't know. Yeah. But I think when you know an artist, you think very differently about them to the way you might think about them if you don't know them. And I never met Agnes Martin. So I'm coming at her in a very different way. I can't imagine what it would be like to be in her presence or, you know, to embrace her. I'd, I'd love to have met her, yeah. but I don't know what that would have been like. So I can only imagine. So my looking is more naive and raw without inflection. I got to know Agnes Martin long before I ever went to New Mexico, in fact, yeah. before I ever went to the desert or the yeah. Mesa. So I don't have those landscape associations when I think of her painting. For me, it's the sea. And that's because I love the sea and I love the expansiveness of the ocean. So maybe all of us bring our own baggage when we look at even something as refined and as abstract as a Agnes Martin. I've actually, weirdly, I think of Battenberg cakes when I look at some of these paintings, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> which is odd, especially when you see a title like Happy Morning. Let's <laughs> <laughs> all have a Battenberg cake. Yeah. So in your exhibition in 2015, why did you want to curate an exhibition and what did you want to say about her? For me, as a curator, there are two routes into an exhibition. One is that you've got to know so much about an artist and worked with an artist, mm. maybe they're alive, that you just want to have that opportunity of doing something with all that knowledge and you want to comment on it. And for me, that's been really the way I've, most of the shows I've done have been of that type. But there are other times when you're so curious about an aspect of the artist's work that you think of the exhibition as a research project, that it's a project that enables you to do the research and get closer to the work and uncover something. So for me, with Agnes Martin, it was the, the latter type. I didn't know very much about her work. I just really knew this morning, this painting we had in, in the collection. And then I knew the stuff about her, collection of anecdotes and, you know, uh, partial histories. So I was intrigued and excited about the idea of making the show. But once I was told that I could make the show, I was in deep panic because I actually thought, how do you make an exhibition of an artist whose work is so samey? Because that was my impression of Martin. And I got out from the library all the books we had on Agnes Martin. And of course, the work does not reproduce at all. So it really does look yeah. samey. All you see are square, you know, grids and... But then I think that's why it's so important to witness it, it in real exactly. life. Exactly. And why it was so important for me to work, A, with Tiffany Bell, yep. fantastic art historian who was very luckily for me working on the catalogue resume <laughs> and knew everything about every Agnes Martin that had ever been made. And also incredibly important for me to spend as much time as I could visiting 
paintings. So right from the beginning, I went to look at paintings. And for me, that was an education in looking, in slow looking, because you couldn't even take a picture of the paintings that you were looking at and get back to the office and think you had an adequate memoir. So it was a really fascinating project. How do I go and see these paintings and then remember them? Where there's so seemingly little to differentiate them you know, between each other. And I remember very early on, we were offered the loan of a painting before we even had conceptualized the show from a, a collector who's close to Tate. And it was in storage at Momart. So I made an appointment to go and see it. And I was shown into this huge, huge storage space, which was empty, but for a single painting by Agnes Martin wow. on little blocks right at the yeah. end of this room. I mean, like, you know, several hundred meters away, seemingly. <laughs> and behind me, there were four technicians, the guys who'd emptied the yeah. painting. And they said, look for as long as you like. And I thought, what? <laughs> and I was very conscious that these guys were watching me. <laughs> and, you know, it's a really weird feeling being watched, watching something. Yes. You felt very exposed. So I stood in front of the canvas and I looked at it and I thought, what shall I do? Shall I count to 100? Shall I count to 10,000? Then I thought, okay, no, I'm going to really look at this painting and I'm going to write down everything I could think about it. And that was my introduction to Agnes Martin yeah. because I stood there and I had my little notebook and I just became completely absorbed in this painting. And it was such a delight. And out of that looking came so many questions that then fueled my research. And, you know, it sounds like anybody who's outside the art world would think this is so weird, <laughs> but I became obsessed by Agnes Martin's use of masking tape <laughs> because I understood quite quickly that the way she used masking tape and the way she put the paint on over it or whether it was doubled up and where it was peeled off had a profound impact on the edge that she made. And what was interesting is that I began to realize that so much of the practice of the artists that she was interested in, like Newman and Rothko, really comes down to their very, very close reading of the edge of a canvas or where the front meets the background and really, really, really strange things that nobody who's Somebody who's not an artist will find very, very difficult to understand. But once you do begin to understand them, you realize what a profound impact they have on the thing you're looking at. So that with Martin's work, if she used um, masking tape to make her lines, the lines are sharp and heavy and have an edge that really reads. And if she doesn't use masking tape, they're soft yeah. and fluid. It's like learning a new language. Yeah. Once you have the vocabulary and the syntax, you find a really rich world. But until you have that, everything looks the same. Everything sounds the same. And as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we always ask our guest, if Agnes Martin were alive today, would you ask her or say anything to her? I would say thank you. I would. She yeah. changed my life. Amazing. Thank you so much, Frances Morris, for coming on the podcast today. Thank you all so much for listening to the eighth episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the incredible director of Tate Modern, Frances Morris. It was so fascinating to hear Frances' brilliant and passionate approach to Agnes Martin's life and work, and I am definitely going to take my time next time I'm standing in front of one. 
This podcast was recorded by Joel Price, sound edited by the brilliant Ellie Clifford. And if you have been enjoying this episode so far, I would be so grateful if you were to rate and leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Thanks to the National Art Pass, you can now access free entry to over 240 museums, galleries and historic houses across the UK, plus 50% off major exhibitions such as the British Museum and Tate. Membership is just £70 per year and for those under 30, it's just £45. And for lucky Great Women Artists listeners, you can also receive an exclusive tote bag when you buy a National Art Pass by entering the code GREAT at checkout. Thanks to our sponsor, the National Art Pass, for making this podcast possible.